In this particular message, we're going to be talking about rest in hard times. And that can be taken as a noun or as a verb. Uh, Rest in hard times. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God wants to take all our burdens, trials, and suffering away. Nowhere. Instead, Jesus actually calls us to suffering. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, it says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. But God also promises and calls us to rest in trials and suffering in hard times. Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Wow, that's tremendous hope. Not only does God call us to suffering, and we know in the context of what Paul was talking about there, obviously the, the early church was suffering the persecution of those around, but all suffering is involved in this thing. God does call us to suffering. But in the midst of that, he not only calls us to suffering, he actually calls us to rest in the midst of suffering. And that's what we're going to get at in this particular message. And that's a tremendously hopeful thought. Now, why is it so important that we suffer on behalf of Christ and that we discover rest in suffering suffering in hard times? Well, obviously... Uh, as we talk about the importance of rest in hard times, he wants, us, he wants to grant some relief to the weary. And that's why he says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. There is an element of that. No question about it. And, and Christians talk about that and, and pastors and, and churches talk about that all the time. But that's not what we're going to be primarily focusing on, however, this morning. But because if he just wants to bring relief to the weary, why not just get rid, to, rid of trials and sufferings and hardships altogether? That would bring great relief, wouldn't you think? I mean, why not just deal with the, with the root of the problem in the first place? If, if the reason you're weary and burdened and heavy laden is because you're sick, then why not just take sickness out of the way? And if it's because, uh, you know, uh, some other traumatic thing has happened in your life, and that's why, just remove all those problems, and that would take care of relief, and, and you'd have experienced relief. There are a number of reasons why God allows suffering in our lives. For example, and we're not going to go through them all, I'll just touch on two very, very, very quickly, just to give you an example, but then we're going to move to one that I think we seldom talk about. For example, God allows hardship in our lives in order to discipline us so that we'll bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 12 says, God disciplines us for our what? Good. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. It's character for those who have been trained by it. Uh, He certainly used discipline in my life in order to produce righteousness or character that will result in great reward one day. And that's the beauty of it. He produces the kind of character that then results in things happening that will result eventually in heaven with great reward. I'd say that's a pretty uh, good reason to allow it in my life. That, my friend, is one great reason to rejoice in suffering and why we ought to consider, reconsider simply trying to get out of all our hardships, which is our reflex action. Think of it. 
He wants you to do so well at the final exam that he's allowing things in your life so that you will do well and receive great marks for eternity. We worry about the dot, and he cares about the unending line of our life. Eternal life. I think that's a pretty good God. There's a second reason why God allows hardships is so that we will experience God. Few people ever really experience God when all is well. Have you noticed that? Because they don't really need him. I mean, how many of us in the West actually need to pray for our food before we eat? None of us. If we don't pray today, at any of our meal times, we'll still eat tomorrow. But there are places in the world where if they don't pray, they won't eat. And that's my point. Uh, Sometimes God has to allow, often he has to allow things in our lives, hardships and trials and sufferings, in order to draw us to him and help us to realize that we actually do need him. And there we experience him. It's not just that we get the need. We actually experience him and find the very thing we needed the most. So that's a, that's a very good reason. And that's why it's so important that when you and I face trials and suffering and hardships, that we listen to God for his purposes in this. We, our, our knee-jerk reaction as Western believers is uh, the minute we experience a trial, a hardship, or suffering, is to simply eradicate the problem. We panic, or we just scramble to eradicate the problem instead of falling on our knees and submitting and saying, and listening, as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, and saying, not my will, but your will be done. What is your will, Father? And determining what purposes he's trying to work out and then aligning ourselves with those purposes. Now, sometimes he, actually, he wants to do a miracle and he, wants to, he just wants to come to, uh, us to come to him and ask him and then he removes the problem and that's it. But too many times that's the only purpose that we see in there. And God has many other purposes in, in the midst of this. You may be... Otherwise, we'll be working at cross-purposes with God. Today, this morning... God wants us to consider another reason that he allows hardships in us. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, it says, To this you were, and what's the word? Called. To this you were, say it again, church. Called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. We're called to that. Christ suffered so that we could be saved. Are you glad that he did? Are you glad? Jesus Christ was called to suffer by the Father so that you and I could be saved. And now he says to this, you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now he says, I want you to follow in my steps and I want you to take up the calling of suffering. That is so antithetical to Western Christianity today. It's actually a calling. And now he calls us to follow his example in suffering for others. Take a look at Philippians chapter 2, where it says, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of what? Others. 
Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Isn't that interesting? Now, people say, I'm a child of the king, and so I demand to live like a king. Well, let me tell you something. Your king humbled himself and died for you and for the sins of the whole world. And now your king expects you to follow his example. So much for that false doctrine that's being spread throughout Christianity and that's killing the church. And it's, in, it's infected the church and it's causing us to lose our ability to minister to others. You say, I see no connection between suffering and, and, uh, and ministering to others and reaching others for Christ. You'll see it in a minute. We're so busy trying to get out of our suffering and our hardships that we forget that there's a redemptive side to suffering and hardships, and that redemptive side is others. <clears throat> Philippians 2.4 says, Each of you should look not only, and we, I'm just repeating it now, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others in suffering. It's not suffering for the sake of suffering. No, we don't go looking for hardships, trials, and sufferings. Don't have to do it. There's plenty of them without looking for them. It's suffering for the sake of others. Have you ever considered that? But it's not just suffering in itself that has redemptive value. It's not, it's not just, it's not the suffering in itself that has redemptive. Anybody can suffer. The whole world is suffering. It's broken and it's suffering. There's suffering everywhere. There's brokenness everywhere. No, that isn't the redemptive part when you say, oh, I'm suffering, and now somehow that's redemptive. No, there's nothing redemptive about that. It's how you suffer or bear up under those difficult burdens that makes all the redemptive difference in the world, and this is where resting in hardships comes into play. So what does Jesus type of rest look like in trials and suffering in hard times? Well, first, you'll be content. Take a look at what Paul said. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, what's the word? Content. I know how to be brought low. And then he gives an example. He said, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. That's contentment. The second uh, characteristic of rest, you know, Jesus said, and you'll find rest for your soul. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. You'll find rest for your soul. The second piece of rest, or um, <clears throat> characteristic of what that means, is that you will be joyful. Philippians 2 even if I am to be poured out, Paul was saying, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, he's talking about his martyrdom. I am glad, and he was martyred. I am glad, and what's the next word? Rejoice with you all. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? We're going to be content in our suffering and our trials and hardships? 
and we're going to actually be glad and rejoice in the middle of them? That's not what modern-day Christianity is teaching us at all. But that's what the Scriptures are telling us, and that's what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ modeled and taught us. Third, you'll be hopeful and at peace. Romans chapter 12 says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. This is not the hope of getting out of our hard times or suffering. Some would look at that and say, oh, that's a, you know, this positive thing that, uh, uh, or, or something like that. Uh, no, it's not that. It's not hope for getting out of our suffering. No. It's the hope of the resurrection that he's talking about. When we come to Jesus and we find rest, one of the characteristics is that there's a hope for the resurrection. You say, what does that have to do with anything? This, hope, this kind of hope says, what I'm going through won't last forever. It says, this isn't heaven, this is just earth. It gets better than this, and it will soon be over. That's what that kind of resurrection hope says in the middle of trials and hardships and suffering. And when we suffer like that with rest, it gets other people's attention. The centurion. Uh, for example, had seen many die, but he had never seen anyone die like Jesus died. Look at his response in Mark chapter 15. By the way, uh, t- time out for just a second here. I'm not saying there isn't a period, let's say somebody loses a loved one or something. I mean, we were just praying for people in our church family who've lost, that we can't grieve. Absolutely. We're, our, our hearts are bust. But I'm talking about how we how we grow into what happened. How are we going to respond to these things that will happen to all of us? Now let's continue. The centurion had seen many die, but he had never seen anyone die like Jesus died. And I've seen some, some people in our church die well, haven't you? And when they die, you just go, my goodness, how could they die like that? But this centurion had never seen anyone die like Jesus died. Look at his response. He said, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. No one had died like that. And look at the impact of Paul and Silas. Restful suffering on a jailer. They had been arrested, severely flogged is what the words say in that particular passage in Acts 16. And they were placed in an inner cell with their uh, their feet and hands uh, uh, placed in chains because of their preaching. But what their preaching couldn't accomplish, their restful suffering did accomplish. Watch this. They were in much pain from their beatings and they couldn't sleep. What did they do? At midnight they were praying and singing. Singing? Are you kidding me? Singing in the middle of the night after you've been severely flogged and there's blood and flesh bits all over the place? And you're in tremendous pain and you're singing? That's rest. No pity party here. How many of us feel sorry for ourselves in hard times? I've done it. Just then an earthquake hit throwing open all the prison doors and unshackling all their chains. Many of us would run for the hills, wouldn't we? Why? Because it's all about us. I mean, surely if the prison doors have been opened and uh, we've been unshackled, surely that means God is opening the way of escape and, uh, and I'm out of here. 
Look at Paul and Silas's response. Do you know what they do? They sit there. Have you ever thought about that? They didn't run. They didn't take it as a sign. There's an open door. Must be God's will. They sat there. I, I just, I'm just blown away by that. They stay put. Why? Because they knew that God had a redemptive purpose in all this and would turn even this for the good. And when the jailer awoke and saw that all the prison doors were open, he was about to kill himself because he was certain that all the prisoners had escaped. And of course, his life would be taken then. But Paul shouted, don't kill yourself. We're all here. We're all here? What's the matter with you? You can't be serious. Look at the jailer's response. Because they were all here. Because they stayed in that situation. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? All their preaching had not been able to accomplish what they accomplished in their suffering. The advancement of the kingdom. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. And that night the jailer's entire family was saved and baptized. Is that an amazing story? It's stunning. When we joyfully and patiently suffer on Christ's behalf for the sake of others, they see his power and presence in our lives, drawing them to him. You know, this past winter, Professor Royden, uh, Dr. Royden Lowen, uh, called me and asked me if he could have lunch with me. And uh, I'd met him before, but I'd never, I'd never uh, had lunch with him or talked with him before, and I didn't know what he wanted. And uh, as it turned out, he wanted to ask some questions about churches and stuff. He, he does a lot of research in that uh, for, his, uh, for his classes. And, uh, but before, he ta- before we ordered, he said, I brought you a gift. And he pulled from the floor. I hadn't seen it there. Uh, he pulled out. I pulled out a big brand new book, like 1,150 pages in it, and he pushed it over to me, and he said, this is a gift from me to you. And the title of the book is Martyr's Mirror. It's written by Thielman J. Van Bracht. And uh, he said, I, I know that you speak a lot, and whenever you are looking for illustrations of people who have sacrificed much, I want you to be able to go to your forefathers the Mennonites, the Anabaptists, and be able to use their stories instead of just anybody's stories. It's a tremendous gift to me, and I keep it right at the side of my bed. Big book, big, thick thing. Well, the Anabaptist uh, has quite a uh, number of incredible stories in there. The Anabaptist Mennonites were broken on the torture rack. Some were strangled, beheaded, drowned, burned at the stake, and buried alive. So powerful was the Anabaptist witness at the time of execution that they were increasingly carried on in secret because they were, they were always witnessing and praising God and singing and all this kind of stuff as they were being executed. And it bugged the authorities because more people just got saved, so they started doing it in secret, just killing them in secret. Or the martyrs were gagged or a clamp placed over their tongue. They gave thanks that they could witness to the truth in this way. And when state persecutors clamped their tongues, the Christians tried to slip their tongues out so they could shout prayers and praises out to God before the people. In desperation to silence these fearless martyrs, the persecutors then seared the tip of their tongues, creating a swelling that prevented the martyr from pulling the tongue out of the clamp. 
And the result of this kind of suffering and dying, such courageous, this resting in suffering, as I would call it, drew many to the faith because of the glory that it brought to God in their martyrdom. These people weren't disappointed with God. They weren't discouraged. They weren't disillusioned. They didn't become angry with God. They were at rest in the midst of their intense trials, and it glorified God or put a spotlight on him and drew many to him. What a heritage we have. Incredible. If we are grumbling and complaining about the little trials and the sufferings, and sometimes they're big, and testings that we have, we're not. It's proof that we're not at rest in the midst of our suffering. And others cannot see the power and presence of Christ in our lives. How many of you, and I don't want you to raise your hands, how many of you have people around you who are hardened to the gospel, they aren't a bit interested, but who might sit up and take note of how you handle a trial or hardship if you did it in the power of Christ, resting in Him? If we handle it the same way as everyone else does in a broken, suffering world, then we don't have a God that is attractive to anyone else. Why do they need him? Everyone else can suffer like that too. Let me ask you a question. If you know that your trials and sufferings have meaning and purpose, as we've just shown, that they're a calling, that they can make an eternal difference, that you can be eternally rewarded if you align with God's purposes, doesn't that just change everything in your heart? Doesn't it inspire you to respond to the call of Jesus to suffer on his behalf for the sake of others? God has shown me recently that he is taking Southland into a season where he wants to teach us as a church family how to suffer restfully on his behalf. And I'm going to be saying more about that in a few moments. But uh, throughout my time here, six, it's nearly 16 years now, there have been seasons where where God has just shown me, teach them this, and we've slowly been moving and slowly moving the thinking and our hearts that way and our behavior. And then there's another season for this, and then there's another season for this, and another season for this. This is one of the seasons that I believe he has, he has already been working in us and moving us in this direction. So let's look at the conditions for resting in hard times. How do you receive that promised rest of contentment joy, and hope. Well, first, take Jesus' yoke and burden. Matthew chapter 11 says, Come to me, all you who, are lab- uh, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. The burdens we often pick up and carry are difficult and heavy. There's no question about it. No question. Many of the burdens and trials and sufferings that we have that we carry are very heavy and very difficult. No question. But according to Scripture, Jesus' burdens are easy and light. But, but, that doesn't mean that his burdens aren't big. There's a huge difference. It doesn't say in here that his burdens, it says that his burdens are easy and light. But it does not say that his burdens aren't big. It's not like you come to him and, and uh, you take on his burdens and you had big ones, you drop them off, now you take his and his are little. Oh, no, no, no. They seem light and easy, but they're actually 
much bigger than the ones you had in many cases. And I'm going to illustrate that in just a sec. Let me illustrate it from my own life, and, and I'm going to make a caveat before I do it, because in a church family this big, and that's what I love about it, being, having a church family this big, there are many examples of people in our church who are absolute giants and models to us in how you suffer. I looked at some of them in the eye this morning and said good morning to several of them. They are absolute giants. And they're models, good models for us here at Southland for how you do it. But I can't use, the, I can't, I, I can only use from my own. So I want to illustrate small burdens that are heavy, that are ours, and big burdens that are from him that are light, okay? So I'm going to use my own life for that. In 1980, 84, we were, uh, uh, I, I was, God had called us to ministry from the career that I had had, and I was, uh, I was attending Bible college, and, uh, and uh, I was very, very busy. I was a full-time student. I, was full, I had a full-time job, married with four children, sang week, in a weekly choir, led uh, youth and young adult activity every Friday night, and every Sunday morning I taught the youth, young adult Sunday school, uh, all volunteer. I didn't get paid for any of this. And I was the president of the student body, and sometimes I would travel with the senior pastor to sing solos in other churches. I never had one day off, ever. One day in Greek class, I was, I was so busy. My, my nights were so terribly short, and my days very, very long. And one day, in a Greek class, I was sitting there, and the Greek class had just opened, and the professor got up, and he said, uh, he looked at me, and he said, Ray, I'd like you to uh, begin the lesson I'd like you to read the Greek sentence, I'd, then I'd like you to translate it, and then I'd like you to parse every word in it. And I'd done all the homework, and so I picked up the textbook, and I began to read the Greek, you know, I just, I started to look at the Greek sentence, and suddenly this is what happened. A tingling started in, the, in my feet, in, in the tips of my toes, and it slowly moved up my legs and through my torso up to the crown of my head. And as it did, it felt so good, and I just let go, and it was over. I was done. I couldn't go, I couldn't take another step, and I just let go. And I just sat there and stared straight ahead. And I may have had a silly grin on my face, I don't know, but the prof knew I was in trouble. And so he, we had just opened the class, and he dismissed the class. And he asked me to remain behind, and I just sat there. And then he came and he helped me with that. Now, that burden, the burden that I took on, I had allowed people's expectations and demands to be placed on me. They weren't bad people, but I just kept piling on. And I finally, it was too heavy and too difficult, and my burden, under that burden, I finally collapsed. The burden I took on was relatively small, but very heavy. I couldn't do it. But now I want you to compare it to something that happened to us here at Southland. And, um, and uh, in 1995, we had said, yes, we'd become the pastor here at uh, Southland. And at that very time, we had two teenagers that were away from the Lord for about a 12-year period, and, and, they, and, and their uh, rebellion against the Lord was uh, overlapped some. So there's a period where two of them were gone from the Lord at the same time. Then, we had, we had a truck that I was driving just before we got hired here. And so when the Lord called us to take the church over here, we knew that he would take care of the sale of the truck. Because obviously if you're doing his will, he takes care of all those things, right? Right? 
I mean, surely if you follow the Lord's will and you hear Him and you're doing everything you're supposed to, then nothing, it will all go right. Well, it didn't go right from a human standpoint. That thing didn't sell for a full year. And it was costing us thousands of dollars and we were going down and down and down into the hole. And at one point, I finally went back to the board and I said, I have to drive this thing part-time because I'm losing so much money. We got this close to bankruptcy. It was a total mess. It was awful. And at one point, Fran and I would, on Sunday night, we'd take the truck and do a trip to Vancouver, be back in time for Wednesday night, Thursday morning, I'd be in the office, try to do as much work as I could, get ready a message, preach on Sunday, Sunday night, leave for Vancouver. And we did this for several months, just nonstop. This was happening at the same time we had the teenagers. Then my wife got sick, critically sick. And then I had to start, and then I had parked the truck, and I mean, the, some people helped us even with some of that, but we were just ruined financially by that point. And we were doing what Jesus told us to do. We were completely ruined. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, then, then Frank got sick, and then it was weeks and weeks and weeks in the hospital and driving her back and forth, and then we had to take her to Philadelphia. That, was, that operation was going to cost $100,000. Manitoba government wasn't going to pay for it. And finally, our MLA, Kelvin uh, uh, Gertzen, got involved. And then they, the, the Manitoba government, he pressured them, and they, they were going to pay 80%, but that still left a, a whole lot of money. And, and again, some people helped, but it cost us a whole ton, and we just sunk even further. And uh, at, at the same time, I'm trying to pastor a church, and we didn't have any speakers we did, Chris wasn't here at the time, and all these wonderful guys that we have, you know, Chris Pewhatch and Tim, Tim Ryan and Donnie and Tom and, 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 and Ray Yoder and all this, they, none of them were on staff. And so every Sunday morning, here I was under this big burden, and every Sunday morning I was getting up to encourage everybody else. But guess what? Through that whole time, I never collapsed. Is that amazing? Much bigger burden, but relatively easy and light. Ha! Is that something? My little burden, I collapse. God's big burden, huh, I don't collapse. I should be dead. Do you know that it wasn't until this Thursday? Fran and I have never been able to figure out why he allowed that to happen with the truck. It made no sense whatsoever. I said, we, we, I mean, we, we would think about it. It wasn't until this Thursday, as I was preparing for this message, the Holy Spirit said, now, do you want to know about the truck? I said, yeah, I've wanted to know for a long time. <laughs> he said, I was just piling on. I wanted to pile on really big. I wanted to get big enough so that you could see that when I really piled on, if it was my burden, it was easy and light if you came to me. If you took my burden and you came to me and you got the grace from me, you could do it. You couldn't, be, you couldn't do the other one, that little one you couldn't do. Ha! But you could do mine. And I went, you ruined me for that? <laughs> well... He has a way of recovering us then too, doesn't he? He's very good. The second, and and uh, how is it possible that his yokes and his burdens can be easier and lighter than ours if his are so much bigger? And for that answer, let's go to the condition number two. Go to him. Matthew 11 again says, Come to me, all you who are uh, 
burdened uh, labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. The condition for experiencing God's rest when carrying about Jesus' burdens and harness to his yoke is come to me. Why? Because you'll receive grace to carry such a big and heavy burden. 2 Corinthians 12 says, My grace is sufficient for you. What do you need this grace for? Well, what does this grace do for you? Well, when you come to him, what is this grace, this thing that helps you carry big burdens? And some of you have carried much bigger ones than I've ever carried. I just use that as an illustration between you know, relatively small and relatively big. But what is that grace exactly? What does it do? Well, first of all, when we come to him, uh, it's to know who he is, that he is sovereign and in control, and Chris talked about that uh, very well last week. Secondly, it's to know what burdens you are to carry, because it's only his burdens you're supposed to carry. See, that's, that was the point. When I was way back there in school, I was carrying burdens he had never asked me to carry. And many times, we carry the expectations and demands of people that he's not asking us to carry. If he asks us to carry them, then we ought to do it, and then it's easy and light. But when we carry demands and expectations of people that he's not asking us, then they're heavy because he doesn't give grace for that. He only gives grace for the burdens that he gives. Does that make sense? And I think in a church like this, for me, this is one of the toughest areas because I would like to be with every single one of you. That's my nature. And I can't. And, and so I have to discern what are his burdens and what aren't. To know, number three, how to carry these burdens. There are strategies for carrying them. And sometimes it's because uh, July 1st, 2004, we had just built phase one. Everybody was out celebrating July 1st. I was in the office, and I was upset. I should have been happy. We're in a new phase, phase of build. I was very upset because I was just over. Oh, I just felt overburdened. I had no time off. And that day, as I spent time with God, he showed me, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that same burden, but you're doing it the wrong way. You're carrying it the wrong way. There's ways to carry a sheet of whatever. <laughs> yeah, plywood. And there's a way not to do it. That'll hurt you, right? And the same thing with carrying God's burdens. Then number four. To receive the desire to carry his burdens. Philippians 2 says, For God is working in you, grace, giving you the desire and the power to do what it pleases him. Many believers, when faced with trials, just want to fold or quit or die. Usually it's because they don't see any purpose to their suffering. But as we saw, suffering is to be done on behalf of Christ for the sake of others. And if you'll go to him, he'll show you how it's true in your case. And he'll give you the desire to do his will. I've heard Fran and many others say, often say this, and I quote, though I wouldn't wish this on anyone else, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Have you ever heard people who are going through tough times say that? I've heard them say it. And I hear Fran say that to me. She says that to me often. The main reason that she isn't here on Sunday mornings is because of what she's dealing with. She can only go Saturday night or Sunday morning. But you know what she's doing right now? She's praying. She found a purpose in the suffering. And if she wasn't, she'd be an activist. That's what she is. But instead, she's sitting at home right now praying. 
for the church and for Christ's kingdom. Many do that. They find it. And, and so she says, there's a side of me, yes, I, I want to be healed, but there's the other side, God's called me to this. Number five, to receive the power needed to carry his burden. There are some burdens God allows that are simply too big to carry. The loss of a child or a spouse. A life-threatening disease. A physical impairment that robs you of energy or mobility or dignity. An affair or the desertion of a marriage by a spouse. A financial reversal or collapse. A career or job loss. Inability to have a child, etc. The list is endless. Sometimes God allows such burdens that are simply too big. And there are some burdens God asks us to carry that are simply too big, voluntarily to carry. The Father asked us sins of the world on a cross. Some assignments God asks you to carry out are simply too big and too heavy for you to carry out. And this is where it gets interesting. The burdens he either allows in your life involuntarily or asks you to carry voluntarily come with a gift. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, as we saw in those five and four things, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. You receive power to carry the burden when you go to Jesus. That's where you get those five things. Not in the knee-jerk reaction that says, I'll... I'll, I'll do it myself, and I'll fix the problem, or I'll get, eradicate the problem. No, when we go to Jesus, we get grace for those five things. And when you receive the power, you are resting in your suffering. Amen? Then you can say things like I've heard some of you say, I wouldn't wish it on anyone else, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. That person is resting in their suffering. I burned out when I carried my own burdens, but I was strong when I took his burdens because of the strength he gave me when I went into his presence. Now, I'm, we're going to wrap it up, but with two very key things that I'm going to be talking about now. God is developing and growing Southland to be an effective and powerful body to transform the lives of many thousands of people, I believe. And one of the places he has been trying to mature us in is in our response to trials, sufferings, and hardships. Think of how many people we would impact with the gospel if we just got this one thing down pat. You want to talk about evangelism strategies? This is a key divine evangelistic strategy. We would attract so many hurting people who would find rest in Jesus because it's a broken world. And if we really matured in this, two key things would happen that I want you to hear right now. First, it would give permission for people experiencing God's miracles to celebrate his miracles in the church and all over the region. I want you to think about this. For well over a year, Grace Fast and I and Frantu, we've we've been having ongoing discussions. Why are we not seeing more miracles in our church? We believe in it, we have in power, we teach it, all this kind of stuff. And actually, we are seeing miracles, more than you know of. We just saw a couple of major healings, cancer kind of stuff, in recent months. We are seeing some of that, but we're not seeing, we always have this feeling like it's not what God really is planning. 
And we keep asking that question. And this week, yesterday, I believe he gave me the answer. And I quickly text, I told Fran and I text Grace, who was at the Empower, and I said, I think I know the answer. She's waiting to come back uh, to hear the answer. And I think the answer is God's waiting for us to mature in this matter of responding to the call of suffering. And I'll show you how. I'll show you why this is so. Have you ever noticed that just because we experience some of the miracles here, we never talk about them on stage? Have you ever wondered about that? Some of you probably have wondered. Why don't they ever celebrate? I mean, shouldn't we be giving glory to God? Why do we never say anything? We don't even say anything at the prayer summits about it, other than generically saying these kinds of things. Do you know why? Because often when we celebrate what God is doing in one life, and somebody who's suffering in that same area, in another area, they find they struggle with it in that area. Why doesn't God do that for me? Okay? I mean, it's, it even happens with little children. One couple has a child. They pray and they get a child. And, and then they're all excited about their little baby. And then all they, they feel guilty because they come into the presence of somebody who can't have a child yet. Do you see the problem? And I think God is saying, we're living in a broken world. We, will, we are all or will all suffer. And God is saying to us, we need to mature in this area of suffering and recognize it as a calling because there are some people out there who will only be attracted to the gospel by, watching, by seeing a miracle. There are other people who are out there who need Jesus who will only respond to him if they see God take somebody and dangle them over the cliff and sustain them there for a lengthy period of time and they see Jesus shining through them. We need both kinds, amen? Not just one. We need both kinds, but we all, I mean, we'll, we'll default to the miracle we won't default to the calling for suffering. And so Jesus says, before I, <laughs> I give you more in that area, I've got to teach you about this. Because once you can work with me in this, then we can let it rip in this, and we can put our arms around each other and all glorify God together, whether, whether he's miraculously holding us in the midst of suffering or whether he does just a, a miracle that blows everybody out of the water. Amen? That's what he's calling our, uh, our, our church uh, to. You know, um, Fran's health problems started in 1997, 14 years ago, practically the whole time I've been here. She's had 10 operations. She just had another one a year and a half ago. She's not, she's not fixed. People think, oh, she is. They see her smiling. And they think it's all good. I'm going to tell you a little secret here, but I'm telling it for a reason. There is never a week that she doesn't have one to two really bad days. And there are some weeks, it's practically the whole week. And it means we often can't see people or something in the evenings. Her schedule, like it's, it's just the way it is. But you know why I'm telling you this? I'm not telling you because I want you to feel sorry for us because, or for her because there's others that are suffering much more than that. But... 
I don't want you to feel guilty. I want to give permission. If God does a major healing in your life, I want you to come to her. I want you to come to me and tell us. And you know what we'll do? We're going to dance together. In fact, we've done it many times with people. We never think of it that way. We just say, oh, God is doing something in their life. Yes! Amen? And then we let him continue to work in our life the way he chooses. Amen? Not our wills, but his will be done. And it's just for a dot. What's that? It's a dot we're living in. God is working his power within us. And in your miracle, he's working his amazing power in another way. But in all ways, God gets the glory. We have some real giants here at Southland who have shown us how to rest in suffering, and I'm learning from that. So uh, let's do this together, suffering or celebrating. There's one, one more thing, and then we're done. Not only will it give permission for us to celebrate in the region what God has done miraculously, when somebody suffers, and when we mature as a church, and we recognize it as a privilege and a calling to suffer on his behalf for the sake of others, it inspires others who are not going through a difficult time right now. True? Oh, yes, it, it really does. And it inspires them to then voluntarily Die to self and sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. I'll give you an example. The hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, was written after several traumatic events in Horatio Spafford's life. The first was the death of his only son in 1871 at the age of four, shortly followed by the Great Chicago Fire, which ruined him financially. He had been a successful lawyer. Then in 1873, he had planned to travel to by ship to Europe with his family, but sent the family ahead while he was delayed on business concerning zoning problems following the Great Chicago Fire. While crossing the Atlantic, the ship sank rapidly after a collision with a sailing ship, and all four of Spafford's daughters died. Four daughters died. Is that a big burden? That's a big burden. His wife, Anna, survived and sent him the now famous telegram, Saved Alone. Spafford traveled to meet his grieving wife, and he was inspired to write these words as his ship passed near where his four daughters had died. That inspires me to want to serve sacrificially for Jesus. Amen? Wow. I asked the worship team and choir to close with this song. And as they're gathering, listen to these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well. It is well with my soul. We're going to sing all four stanzas, and the last one is a triumphant one. Oh, when it gets there, church sing out. They, last night, you should have heard them sing. It was unbelievable in here. I don't think we've ever sung like that. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord will descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. That, my friend, is our hope. During the song, this is what I'd like you to do. Prayerfully offer your trial 
your suffering and your hardship to Jesus as a sacrifice of love and worship and ask him to use it for his honor and his glory. Submit it to him. Give it to him as a sacrifice of worship. Then pick up your cross and follow him restfully this week. Amen? Lord Jesus, help us toward that end. Help us to become a mature church in this particular area of suffering so that your kingdom might be advanced in the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen.